Well, as we continue on in our survey of church history, we made our way to Acts chapter 15, and we began to talk about the events that took place in Acts chapter 15 that center on this major dispute, this major sort of controversy, if you will, that that brewed and percolated to sort of a fever pitch and a, and a climactic point that had to be addressed and resolved uh, amongst those leaders of the New Testament church, the early church there in Jerusalem, the apostles and the elders there, to really deal with this substantive issue. And we, we talked about how uh, the Jerusalem Council and what was discussed and addressed and and debated and, and resolved at that council really is representative of the type of conflict and controversy that has followed the church through all of its history. Um, it is a dispute over really what is the gospel, what's the heart of the gospel. And really it's this, this, this tendency that man has to want to prove himself in his pride, to want to demonstrate to the world and even to God that he is worthy of God's favor. And it's just this constant drumbeat of, of performance-based religion, of, of salvation by works, of earning the favor of God through our own merit. And so that's, that's what came to an apex at the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15. We talked um, last week about the dispute. We looked at the dispute um, from the vantage point of what was taking place there in Acts chapter 15, recognizing that this was an understandable dispute. Um, it wasn't something that was just out of nowhere. It was something that had been building. Um, you have uh, this, the, the fact that you, the, the Jewish faith and the Judaistic uh, practices were so ingrained in the hearts and minds of those early believers and uh, the power structure that was in place, the religious power structure that was in place, uh, would resist any kind of threat to it. Um, the, the understanding that had developed that this new, Christ, this new way, this new following of Christ was really just a sect or an add-on of Judaism as opposed to it being a brand new work or a new covenant, um, a, a, a fulfillment of the law and the prophets, if you will. Um, just all the things that were taking place there in that time, it makes the, the dispute not something that's coming out of left field. It's not the kind of dispute that you would look at and go, how could, they, how could they be debating these things, or how could they be having these kinds of disagreements or arguments? The fact that, that Gentiles were coming to faith in Christ and being integrated into this new gathering, this new group of called out people, this new ecclesia or church, uh, rubbed many uh, faithful, um, very diligent Jews who followed the law and who followed the festivals and who had been worshiping according to the law of Moses and to the Old Testament principles for years and years and years to have these unclean pagan heathens coming in and integrating into the church by mere uh, recognition of faith and trust and need for a Savior um, was difficult for many to, to take in and to understand and even really um, sort of emotionally or mentally uh, kind of reconcile and even tolerate in terms of the life of, of the church and fellowship. There was a fear that the, the number of Gentiles being so much greater than the Jews, there would be a sort of a takeover. There would be a diminishment of, 
of the traditions of Judaism. And so you have a lot of things coming together that, that just make this dispute understandable um, and, and, and really uh, uh, not a surprise in some ways. Uh, we talked about how it was a building dispute. This is something that had been growing. It wasn't something that all of a sudden, you know, uh, they're in Antioch there and, and this, these Judaizers, these men from Judea come down and all of a sudden start talking about the need to, for Christians to be circumcised and to follow the law of Moses. This was something that had been brewing. We looked at Galatians chapter 2 and how this even affected Peter. And Peter came to Antioch at one point prior to the Jerusalem Council and was sort of fellowshipping with the Gentiles, but when the, the Judaizers would come to town, those that would believe in the need for circumcision and following the law as part of salvation, then he would separate from the Gentiles and only have fellowship with those Jewish people and was basically caught up into this same sort of controversy himself. And so this, this had been brewing for some period of time and building for some period of time. And, and of course, we read in Galatians how Paul had to openly confront Peter um, for his hypocrisy there. And fortunately, Peter uh, responded well, as we see in Acts chapter 15 in the Jerusalem Council. We saw how it was a very intense um, dispute. It was no small dissension and debate that took place. It says in Acts chapter 15 too, after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, uh, they were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to uh, uh, talk to the elders and the apostles about this issue. You see in Acts chapter 15, 7, once the elders and the apostles kind of come away from the, the larger gathering, it says there was much debate, or after much debate had taken place. Um, so you know that there was a, a level of intensity there in this dispute. It wasn't something that was um, sort of this uh, just minor difference of opinion. Um, I'm sure emotions ran really, really hot and really, really deep in this dispute. And I, I'm bringing all this out because I just think it's important for us to recognize. I think that there's a little bit of idealism and and uh, and sort of you know perception looking back on the early church with with kind of rose-colored glasses and to just really see the reality of this, um, even in its even in its difficulty, is important. Um, as well as what we're going to look at today, how how this debate, how this dispute. Uh, kind of unfolded in the debate and, and how it was ultimately resolved. It's really a, a great, not only is it good uh, information for us to understand the history of the church as it flowed out in these first 30 years, but it's also a really good example for us uh, as, as New Testament believers in the 21st century. But the intensity of this dispute, I, I think, is very vividly seen in Galatians chapter 2, the first few verses, all throughout Galatians really, but but you can see this when Paul says, then after 14 years, and this is after the three years in the Arabian desert and in Damascus where he was being discipled by Christ, then another 14 years take place, uh, he goes down to Jerusalem. So he's giving us some backstory to his actual time at the Jerusalem Council now because this, this is 17 years after his conversion, which is how we kind of pinpoint the, the relative date of the Jerusalem Council in AD 48-49. Um, so you have this, after this 14-year period, I went up to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a, re- a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. So again, the, the nature of that dispute around 
circumcision for believers. He, he draws that out here, referencing Titus as one example. He says, Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery to them, we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. So the, the intensity of this debate, you kind of see the, the heat of it as Paul's writing uh, to the Galatians as he's describing this dispute and how we, we weren't going to yield for a single second. We were not going to, using terms like they were trying to bring us back into slavery and there is no way we were going to yield. So you just kind of get a, a sense that this was, this was a very intense time in the life of the church for um, the, the new Gentile believers, for the Jews who were trying to figure out what faithfulness and practice in the new church meant for them as faithful Jews, um, for the, the issue of discerning false teaching from true teaching and, and the influx of false teachers into these new believers who didn't know a lot yet, and now they're already on the on the cusp of being deceived further, and of course that promotes or, or prompts the writing of Galatians to the churches there in Asia Minor, needing to correct them because they had obviously been taken captive by some of this. So this this debate, this dispute was intense, and it was substantial. And really, when you think about what it was about, it was, a, it was about this question: What is the gospel? So it goes at the very heart of what Paul had been doing for the past two years. Spending two years traveling from church to church, facing ridicule, slander, even stoning almost unto death for this gospel, and the nature of the gospel being the very uh, fulfillment of what they knew in the Law and the Prophets, fulfilled in Christ Himself on the cross, the whole nature of atonement, of salvation, of being reconciled to God and what that looks like and how that is accomplished, it was on the line. And, and so this, this question, what is the gospel? What is the good news that we're supposed to be delivering? What, what's the nature of it? What makes it good? What is the good news of the kingdom of God? What is the way of salvation and restored fellowship to God? This is at the very heart of what the Apostle Paul and the, and the uh, other apostles were supposed to be about. Taking this gospel, this good news, to the very ends of the earth. In Galatians 1, again, just kind of getting at the heart of Paul here and, and the nature of this intensity and the, and the question that's on the line, he says in verses 6 to 9, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one. So he's calling it a different gospel, but saying that's really not even the right way to, to frame it up. But there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel, the true gospel of Christ. But even if we, and this is that strong statement I'm sure you're familiar with, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. This is what was on the line. And so, thinking about this, from the standpoint of this early period of church history, and then recognizing that this is the question that comes back around and back around and back around and back around all throughout church history. It is, it is something that is a question that is a point of deception uh, that's 
rampant today. What does it mean? What, what does reconciliation with God look like? How is it accomplished? How do I get to God? How, how do I have fellowship with my maker? That's at the very heart of everybody's question, whether they know it or not or will acknowledge it or not. And so the answer to that question, that fundamental question, from the standpoint of revealed truth from God is of paramount importance. And the Apostle Paul knew it and knew it well. And that's what we have to face day in and day out, even in our day and time. That was the question. So let's look a little more closely at the actual debate. And I just want to, we're going to be looking at this. It starts really in chapter 15, verse 6, um, and continues on down really toward near the end of the chapter. But uh, the nature of the the debate, I think, is is both helpful for us to understand the ebb and flow here of, of the the unfolding purpose of God in his church, but it also is a great portrait of, um, of the church dealing with difficult issues, of the importance of faithful leadership and godly humility in the dealing of these issues. It gives us a great portrait of, of, of as a church, knowing how to really wrestle with these things and deal with these things in a way that's, that's faithful to the Word of God and honoring to the Lord, ultimately. Um, you see, really, here, there, th- this debate, there's a reality and a necessity of it. And the first few verses there, starting in verse 6 of chapter 15, it says, "...the apostles and elders were gathered together to consider this matter, and after there had been much debate..." Stop right there. There's a, there's a reality here that we've already kind of unpacked a little bit, and a necessity of this debate... So much so that the elders and the apostles had to come aside and they had to spend much time in debate. There is, in other words, I think that there's times when people um, over-spiritualize the nature of dealing with difficult issues in the life of the church. And somehow people, I think, can be led to believe that those in leadership would come together and there's just this this common understanding of the leading of the Spirit, and everybody just comes together and locks arms and has a big group hug, and the decision is made because it's just the, 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 the will of the Spirit is just so clear to everybody, and we just move forward in absolute um, un, unquestioned unity. And right here, you see something very, very different, because what you see gathering together here are the apostles and the elders to go and debate this issue. And it says much debate, indicating that you have those that were actual apostles of Christ who walked with him during his ministry, save only Matthias, although he walked with him and knew him, as we see as he was called in Acts chapter 1. But but you have the twelve that are gathered there, and Paul, and they're actually, there's not agreement. If there was agreement, if there was clarity, if there was immediate understanding or even some recognition of the Spirit's leading in all this, then what's the need for much debate? There is a necessity, I would point out, for this kind of debate to take place in settling and resolving disputes amongst even people of God. It points out the fact that that godly people with good intentions can disagree over a matter can debate over a matter. There's massive opportunity for sin in these issues, for sure. 
massive opportunity for our emotions to take over, for us to respond to one another in, with unkindness, with a lack of generosity, with a lack of humility, for sure. But this cannot lead us to believe that there should never be any kind of challenging discourse that's fraught with some degree of disagreement, that's part and parcel to discerning the purpose and will and plan and direction of God in the context of the church. There's actually a necessity of this kind of thing. And when you think about the stakes involved here in particular, of course, this is something that has to be taken up. It has to be dealt with. It cannot be set aside. Or it cannot be sort of just, let's just take a majority vote and see who, you know, who, who gets the most votes. No, we, we've got we've to wrestle. We've got to have people of good faith and of sound doctrine come together and wrestle through this issue and try to discern what is the will of God according to the Word of God. We can't just, you know, just decide based upon who's the most articulate in the room or how many people are voting for this or how many people are voting for that or what is the path to least resistance or anything like that. There is a necessity, particularly when the stakes are this significant and this high. There's also a counter sort of balance to this in that this kind of debate and dispute should never occur over matters of preference. There can be disagreement, but it should not elevate to the level where you've got all-out debate amongst leaders in the church trying to resolve it matters of just pure preference. Um, So that's just a counterbalance. And you even have at the end of the chapter, you have this great example where Paul, is, Paul and Barnabas are ready to set out on their second missionary journey, and they have a disagreement over whether to take John Mark with them. And that doesn't elevate to the level of, let's call the elders together and decide this matter of dispute. It was a, an internal disagreement about the fitness of John Mark to go on this journey because he had left the journey previous, and the Apostle Paul didn't feel like he was up to the task, but Barnabas did. And so they decided to just part ways for this journey, and they both went and had fruitful ministry. And we see them come back together, and we see at the end of Paul's life, he's calling for John Mark to come to him when he's in prison in Rome. So just a very great testimony, even in this single chapter, of this, the distinction between the necessity for this kind of debate, this kind of, of working things out, versus disagreements over matters of, of preference or opinion. So anyway, I just point that out as a really important example. You have here in this this uh, council, this gathering together of apostles and elders, clearly this plurality, this presence of plurality here. In other words, you don't have, um, you don't, Luke doesn't record for us that they gathered together and Peter and Paul stood up and said, all right guys, this is how it's going to go. Or you don't have Peter, for example, the, the strongest voice amongst the twelve, and the one who actually stood up at Pentecost and delivered that first powerful sermon and was really the leading apostle of the Jerusalem church, you don't have him standing up right out of the gate and just saying, this is how it's going to go. You don't have Paul, who was saved in a dramatic fashion and anointed the apostle to the Gentiles, and you know a Pharisee of Pharisees, one who knew the law inside and out and was now connecting the the Old Testament with the New Testament in, in its most profound sense, you didn't have him standing up out the gate and taking over and saying this is how it's going to go. You clearly have this indication that there's a plurality there. There's disagreement and discussion going back and forth for a period of time. 
before this issue is resolved. And there's a need for that. I, I call this the propriety of disagreement. The appropriateness of disagreement. There's a presence of plurality, and then there's a propriety of disagreement. In other words, when, you, when you're trying to resolve a very, very difficult and substantive issue with massive implications for the people that you're responsible for shepherding, there needs to be a level of potential disagreement that you sort through and work through. It's helpful. It's, it's, it makes, it's logical. It, it, there's a practical element to this as well. It's not, it's not a matter of whether or not there is the presence of disagreement. It's a matter of how that disagreement is handled, how it's resolved, how it's worked through. Well, there's also, in addition to this reality and necessity of this debate, you also see a, the clarity and authority of arguments that are put forward. Um, you see this in the second part of verse 7, on down through verse 18. So after they're gathered together to consider the matter, there's much debate, and it says, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of God, the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. So Peter, who I call an unlikely yet powerful witness, stands up first. Now, why would I call Peter an unlikely witness? What makes his, him standing up in this issue unlikely, in a sense? Because he had kind of backtracked and he, kind of gone with the Jews. He has some history, doesn't he? When you even think about his, his witness to Cornelius, there was reticence there the whole way through. He, couldn't, he could not argue the fact that they believed, Cornelius and his household believed, and the Holy Spirit actually came upon them as it did to them on Pentecost. I mean, he couldn't debate or argue the reality of it. He couldn't debate the fact that he saw these visions of these animals coming down and God declaring that you cannot call what, is, what I've made clean, unclean or common. I mean, he couldn't debate these experiences that he had and this, this call of God and this seal that the Holy Spirit brought. He couldn't debate that, but he was still reticent because even after that is when he had that experience at, in Antioch that, that Paul had to rebuke him for. So Peter, standing up and saying, this, this, is, this, is, this is the truth. This is the gospel. This is a great... This is part of the, the, just the genius of God and his providence to use Peter in this way. Because everybody would, would know that Peter had a certain affinity, and actually he, the, the Apostle Paul calls him the Apostle to the circumcision. He's the Apostle to the Jews. So his affinity, his natural affinity is with the Jewish people. And so you get into this, this debate, and it's hard for us to really... Um, without you know, over-speculating, it's hard for us to really know what that might have looked like. But I have to assume, as you might be able to assume, if you get into a, a room like that, 
and you're dealing with a very substantive issue that everybody in the room, whether you agree on, on the, the main points of it or you have differences on the main points of it, everybody agrees that this is an issue of paramount importance. So no one in the room is arguing from the standpoint of passivity or eh, take it or leave it. Whatever you decide, I'm good with. Everyone was probably very impassioned. And some were probably trying to really diligently weigh and measure and may have kind of waffled back and forth. And if anyone in the room could have been inclined to kind of waver a little bit, Peter might have. It's not inconceivable, though admittedly speculative, that Peter might have been weighing back and forth this whole matter, even verbally, in that period of debate. It's quite possible. Nevertheless, Peter, this unlikely yet powerful witness, stands up, and he, he basically uses the experience that God gave him as his witness to Cornelius and the Holy Spirit coming and putting his stamp of approval on that, that witness, on the, these are my people too. These Gentiles are my people too. It was a statement that the Spirit made by, by falling on them. And he makes this dramatic statement that there is no distinction between us and them. None. That, that is a massive statement for Peter to make in that assembly. And then he has a rebuke. Why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? So now Peter, you can tell, he's had to move from his own identification with the traditions of Judaism. He's now understanding theologically what's going on here. He's now understanding that this, this whole thing has been a yoke. The law has been a burden. None of us have been able to live up under this. Why on earth are we going to put a burden on them that we can't even carry? So now he's understanding this, or he has been coming to this understanding. I don't want to say that this is when it, the light went on. But he's, he's, not just, he's not just understanding this from a practical or a cultural or a fellowship and worship in the body of Christ kind of way. He's understanding this from the profoundest sense of, of doctrine and theology from Old Testament to New. We can't even bear this burden. And then he has that seminal statement about this is the gospel. We believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. And there's the gospel. So Peter starts off with this formidable, authoritative argument. And notice that the authority of the argument is not him. It's him acknowledging once again what God did, even through his own reticence and hesitancy with Cornelius. Go back to Acts chapter 10. He was perplexed. He was pondering. What does this vision mean? He, he, didn't, he didn't understand what was happening. He just had to kind of go along with the Spirit's leading. And then witness what God did in his midst when he showed up at Cornelius' house and saw God work his salvation in them and then bring the Holy Spirit upon them. So this whole, this whole authority is centered on the, the, his testimony of the work of God itself that you just can't dispute. And then you have this, this news from the front lines that Paul and Barnabas deliver. Not a lot of information is given here in verse 12. It just says, and all the assembly fell silent. That gives you an indication of how powerful that argument was from Peter. They just fell silent. So after much debate, Peter stands up and everybody 
just fall silent. And then Paul and Barnabas take their opportunity and they bring news from the front lines. All it says there is that they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. Now, why would this be a formidable argument? And there's not much there in terms of content. We don't know what all they said or what all they reported. We can go back and look at Paul's first missionary journey and maybe you know, get some indication of what might have been reported. But why, why is this particular, the way Luke describes this, that they related the sign, what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles, why would that be a formidable argument? Yeah. Yeah, among the Gentiles. So, in other words, God was at work among the Gentiles, not just in the fact that they were responding with belief and faith, but that he was he was giving authority, divine approval to the message through signs and wonders. And again, when you look at when you study the 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 purpose and function and effect of signs and wonders in the book of Acts, It's all about pointing people, making an avenue, affirming the divine nature and truthfulness and trustworthiness of the message being delivered. So he's, Paul and Barnabas now are just pointing out the fact that, look, God God affirmed this through these signs and wonders. I mean, we we were just, in in every case, too, when you think back to what we studied in the the, um, first missionary journey, multiple times... There would be these reactions to the miracle-working power of Paul, for example. You remember the account where, uh, where is it in, um, I don't remember where they were. Maybe you guys can remember. Where they started worshiping them as gods, um, as, like there was Zeus and Hermes. Was that in Iconium? I can't remember the specific location. But in the first missionary journey, they heal someone. And the, the pagans there believe that Paul and Barnabas are embodiments of Zeus and Hermes, and they just completely, they, they, they're, they're totally distressed by that, and they respond by saying, we are mere men just like you. Every time that they perform some kind of sign like that, and the people respond with some kind of indication that they're honoring or worshiping or giving credit to them, they completely defer, they, compl- they run from that kind of designation. They don't want any credit. They know that this is God doing a work that we can't even explain. We don't, I mean, we don't know how this is happening. It's just God is approving and confirming the divine origin and nature of this gospel message through these wonders. So over and over again, you see this happening as Paul and Barnabas are ministering, and, and they're just testifying to this now before those gathered at the Jerusalem Council to say, this is what God did. God, God approved this gospel. God affirmed this gospel. You go back to the Galatians passage, and he says, I delivered to you this gospel. There is no other gospel. If anyone comes with a different gospel, let him be accursed. That's the gospel that he's talking about that was accompanied by signs and wonders. Salvation through faith alone in Christ alone. Well, then you have the closing argument. James. James stands up, verses 13 to 18 kind of puts a, a nice, tidy bow on this. He says, it says in verse 13, After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon, that's a reference to Peter, has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, 
After this I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it to the remnant of mankind, so that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from old. So there's James, basically just wrapping this up. Basically saying, look, we know this. We know this. This has been prophesied. We, we, we should know that the gospel is for the Gentiles because God had declared it in times of old. He quotes from Amos, Jeremiah, Isaiah, and Daniel in this little section. He, he, he ties this to get together with Old Testament prophecy and, and says what we're seeing is nothing short of the fulfillment of prophecy and the promise of God that's, that came to us centuries before. That's what we're seeing. And that's the closing argument. What else can we do here? You have God doing a work amongst the Gentiles directly through the ministry of Peter, who is reticent and reluctant to even go and do this, to even be in the house, the same house with Gentiles, and yet can't deny the work of God and the coming of the Holy Spirit, sealing this work of salvation through the gospel. You have the testimony of Paul and Barnabas saying, God confirmed this with signs and wonders. And then you have James, who was not with them on any of these occasions and just referred back to what we already know from Scripture. You've got this comprehensive, authoritative argument that goes from really the work of God among us, the the unfolding plan and purpose of God that is affirmed in Scripture by the Word of God. It's a formidable, authoritative argument that is leveled. It's a great example of how these kinds of matters ought to be undertaken. You don't just, you don't just yield to the best, you know, most clever rhetorician in the room. The, the arguments, the, the, the decision has to be based on something that is divine in nature, that is authoritative, that's from the Word of God, that's inarguable, that everybody looks at and at least has to acknowledge. That's true. That's true. Even in reticence, even in, I just, I don't see how this is, even, even in doubt, there is a level of submission to divine authority that is, that is evident here. Well, then you get to the decision. The decision is the final verses there, 19, verses 19 through 29. James continues on after he makes this statement and references these Old Testament prophecies. He says, therefore... My judgment is that we should not trouble those Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. From the ancient generation, for, the ancient, for from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers, with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia. Greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words and settling your minds, although we we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these things, you will do well. Farewell. That's it. There's the decision. Now you have here a very definitive decision, you'll notice. There's no wavering. There's no questioning. Right there in verse 19, you see it. My judgment is that we should not trouble those Gentiles who turn to God. That's it. Very definitive. But you also have a deferential decision here. And that's where you get into this whole instruction that is sent with the letter. That is, a, that is a statement of deference to preserve fellowship amongst Jewish and Gentile believers. Because he, 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 he informs them and instructs them to abstain from these things that are associated with Gentile pagan worship. The, these, these, these behaviors, the, the, the sexual immorality that was associated with, with worship in, in the pagan uh, mystery religions. The, the, the eating food sacrificed to idols. These things, these practices... That, that Paul even expands upon further. And like, for example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, he expands upon and, and gives further sort of clarity on this whole deference that we're to have to others who, for some, for some, this is a stumbling block. In other words, eating food sacrificed to idols is not immoral or sinful. But doing something that you don't have to do, that you have other options of, knowing that it is a deep, troubling matter for a fellow brother or sister in Christ and could cause them to stumble, could actually lead them into the temptation to break fellowship in the body. Just don't do it. Don't do it. And so that's the indication here. There's this deferential element to this decision as he instructs these Gentiles to refrain from these things that will further exacerbate what... what is at the core of some of the, the Jewish believers' trouble in this matter. You've got these believers who are gathered together, and you've got these Jews, and they're like, we now have to fellowship with these people. For all of our lives, we were told they are unclean. Their, their dietary practices are unclean. Their worship practices are unclean. And now we're supposed to come together in fellowship. I mean, that's a very, very difficult uh, transition in terms of the life and fellowship of these people. So there's an element of deference here that, the, that, that James issues and this, this decision uh, that accompanies this decision. It's a unified decision. You'll note that in verse 22, uh, it says, Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose these men. There's an element of uniformity in this decision or of unification in this decision. Verses 25 to 27 it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men to send them to you. Now this does not mean, and I don't think we should imply, that everyone in the room, if they had to vote, would have voted, this is what we need to do. I don't think that you can necessarily be assured of that. In fact, I think that people probably struggled with this for some period of time afterwards. But once the decision was made... They proceeded in a spirit of unity. They proceeded in, in one accord with the decision. And it was also 
but divinely affirmed a decision. In verse 28, you see this reference in the letter itself that was sent, for it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on to you no greater burden than these requirements. This is just a reference to the fact that the Holy Spirit has affirmed this. He came in Cornelius. He's, he's baptized you with the Spirit. Um, the, the Holy Spirit has basically rendered a verdict on this. So it's not just that it seemed good to us. This is, this is something that we have to affirm that God's at work in. And then you have it, the, the evidence here that it was a doxological decision. It was a decision that yielded up an element of praise and rejoicing. You see there uh, in verse 30 to 31, it says that when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. In other words, it was a decision that brought about rejoicing amongst God's people. So you just have this full-bodied sort of picture or portrait into godly decision-making over a very substantive matter that would greatly influence and affect the life of the church going forward. And this is a great picture for us to see how this process unfolded. We'll note as we continue on in our study, not just of the rest of Acts as we move through that rather quickly, but also as we continue on in our study of church history, this is going to come back again and again. Of course, we know uh, the Protestant Reformation, this is kind of at the center of it, but there's, there's no shortage of this. When you just think about uh, the, the vast majority of, of religions and sects and cults, it all comes back to this very issue. Even those that would claim a Christian orientation of their, of their belief. You think about um, Jehovah's Witness or Mormonism, there's an element of works-based salvation in their belief system that they, they promote. Mormons are on the front end with that, and Jehovah's Witnesses are on the back end where you, you can lose your salvation. In order to get it back, you have to start doing good works again and kind of repent of your evil works. So it's a, just everywhere you look, Islam, same thing, same, same issue. Over and over and over again, we see this issue coming to the fore and, and, and uh, being an issue. So we, we have to be very, very clear on what is the gospel and what it's not. And our message and our preaching and our proclaiming of it needs to be based solely on, on what's clear in Scripture and what God has revealed, nothing less and nothing more. Any final thoughts or questions before we pray or dismissed? gracious way to the churches you know I just I just never noticed uh, I always really admired this passage but I just I never noticed why until just reading through this um, you know it seemed good to us and it seemed well to us and the Holy Spirit and to the church and um, it just comes across in such a gracious way like you said so I appreciate you pointing that out yeah <clears throat> I just really love to that I mean at the height of the the signs and wonders of the Spirit, they didn't leave out that. I mean, really, the final argument was the Word of mm-hmm. God. And so I think so much of the church has gravitated towards the signs and wonders, but they ignore this that the, the Word is what really. And I just, I would love to have been able to like hear the thoughts of those in the room when they started connecting these scriptures that they have ignored Mm -hmm. for so long Mm -hmm. and realizing God has been saying this since Genesis, really, you know, like just to see those light bulbs going off would have been really cool. When you think about um, 
what routinely happens um, where, where people are either led astray or, or seeking to lead others astray. It is either something really wacky and off the charts that's just sort of some made-up weird thing and it just appeals to people who just, you know, just want to be subversive throughout. But those that are closer to some central tenets of Christian faith, oftentimes it is a, uh, a private interpretation of Scripture that, that is, it's, it's up to, it's, it's my own, I have this new revelation of how to understand this particular section of Scripture, and so you have to follow my special revelation of this interpretation of Scripture. Or it's a complete um, sort of twisting of the meaning of Scripture into something that oftentimes, if not invariably, is oriented towards self-aggrandizement or self-enrichment money, making money off of some kind of religious movement. Um, over and over and over again, you see this happening where it's, it, it's, there's, an, there's a, a concerted effort underway to do something other than take what Scripture says and trust it as authoritative and, and, and understandable to the masses. It's not, it, it, yes, there are things that require some work to understand, but Perpiscuity of Scripture is a, a principle that just means that it's, it's accessible to many. And this particular issue at the Jerusalem Council makes that point. It couldn't make it more vividly because you're talking about bringing the fulfillment of God's redemptive plan in Christ to people who had no idea about Old Testament history, who had no framework or paradigm for temple worship. None of that. Total pagans. And yet they resolve this issue to say, we can't, we can't burden them. They'll grow in their faith. They'll understand this as we move forward. This is God's work that we've got to submit to. So, yeah. You were going to say something, Caleb? Um, we talked about earlier about early on the Christian church still meeting at the temple. And there's still being a lot of blending of, of new Christian doctrines and then a lot of old uh, Judaistic practices. Um, could, could you say that like this council kind of was the catalyst of starting to separate those two and establishing like the more centralized Christian church and then kind of separating from all the practices before? I mean, I would say it's definitely the um, sort of the doctrinal impetus for it. It's, it's sort of, it's sort of, it's, it's framing up the core tenet of the gospel as a, a point of, of understanding of the work of God that they're, they're experiencing and partaking in. But I would also say that there are other factors that contribute to the, I mean, you've got, for example, um, in, in a matter of just a few, not, not too many years, there's going to be political tension that mounts up and then the rebellion that takes place and then Titus Vespian comes in and completely sacks Jerusalem and the temple's destroyed. And so, so that also kind of diminishes um, the influence, if you will, and, and in presence of a Jewish-centric kind of world, really, in terms of, in terms of the, the religious practice or monotheism or, or whatever. So, but yeah, definitely. I would, I would say it's definitely a, a central piece of that. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you, guys. I'll pray for us, and we'll be dismissed. <laughs>